Hello, and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today, we will continue with our part two to immigration and the development of cities. Before we dive in, we will share a quick little snippet about our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you in part by Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. Go see our friends at Keen Insights for all of your internet marketing needs. Next, EliteBookEdits.com. Writing, writing, wherever it's wrong. Go see our friends over at EliteBookEdits.com for all of your book editing needs, both fiction and nonfiction. Lastly, a little plug for myself, Immortals Revelations, now available for sale in Amazon and Kindle, as well as the naughty list. Immortals Revelations, about two vampires who want to reveal themselves to the world. They don't like that term, but then things start going wrong. And then the naughty list is a little fun Christmas romantic comedy. I hope you check it out and take a read. Post a review if you like it. Okay, so when last we left off, we finished with the processing at Ellis Island. And we're going to pick up with the journey and what life was like in the cities. And as usual, we have our resident AP history teacher, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. The journey took weeks and sometimes around a month to arrive at Ellis Island. For most people who traveled in steerage, You can imagine how difficult the journey was and how poor the conditions were. People were crammed into spaces like cattle. The more people, the more money steam liners made. Picture bunk beds stacked next to each other. People seasick, wearing the same clothes for days or weeks on end. The smell, to put it mildly, was not pleasant. Diseases spread, but for most people, they were willing to do whatever they needed for a chance at a better life. Imagine being a teenager, not knowing a person in this new country, no job, no place to stay, little money in your pocket. Imagine the faith you have to have in this idea of America being the land of opportunity. Imagine the courage you need to have in order to make that choice, a choice that meant you would most likely never see your family again. For some immigrants, it was a choice between life and death as they left Eastern Europe and Russia in order to escape persecution. You also have to understand that when newly arrived immigrants stepped off of those boats, there were also many different types of people waiting to take advantage of them. Railroad agents looking to sell passage out west, political rings looking to secure votes and support by offering places to live or jobs in a factory that were available. Usually if something sounds too good to be true, it typically is. The other major immigration hub in the United States on the West Coast was Angel Island. It's located just off of the coast of San Francisco, and it was an immigration center from 1910 until 1940, closing only after a fire destroyed the administration building. The station was built to enforce the Chinese Immigration Act. There is a very different experience when visiting Angel Island than when visiting Ellis Island. I have been to both. I went to San Francisco, and while I was there, I decided I was going to go to Angel Island, and I also saw Alcatraz, which the person at the hotel thought was hilarious. And his response to me was, only Americans go to jail on vacation. I thought that was kind of funny. So when you go to Angel Island, some people refer to Ellis Island as the Island of Tears. 
But for most, it was the gateway to the United States. For Angel Island, this is a military barracks. It was built with the intent of protecting the United States from unwanted immigrants. People weren't detained at Angel Island because they were sick. They were detained because of where they were from. People were detained, imprisoned, questioned, and interrogated repeatedly by officials who were looking for any sort of discrepancy, any excuse to refuse entry into the United States. The majority of immigrants who came to Angel Island were from Asia, but immigrants also came from Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, Central and South America, even some Eastern European Jews who were fleeing Nazi Germany. The station was segregated. Whites were separated from non-whites and men were segregated from women. Some immigrants stayed days, others weeks, months, even years. The tour of the barracks I went on was really just moving. Seeing the way Asian immigrants were treated and seeing the carvings of the poetry and stories that people carved into the walls is really something I'll never forget. The walls of Angel Island talk. They are covered in the stories of the people who were detained there. Even through the horrible treatment, the interrogations, the fear, the sadness, the hope that they had for a better life and for freedom within America was still evident. There were bunk beds, three beds high, and there was no room in between them. They were very cramped. Children were kept with their mothers and husbands were separated from their wives. They were questioned separately. They were looking for any slight difference in responses. While legally Chinese immigrants were barred from entering the the United States, there were some exceptions made. Uh, For example, merchants, travelers, students, teachers, diplomats, they were allowed in. Laws were passed in the United States that banned Chinese immigrants and their American-born children from becoming citizens. So where you had other groups who were able to go through the citizenship process, Chinese immigrants were banned. The Chinese Exclusion Act remained in place until 1942. A similar law, the Gentlemen's Agreement, prevented Japanese immigrants from coming to the United States. It was called the Gentlemen's Agreement because in order to prevent the U.S. from legally banning the Japanese, the Japanese government agreed not to send any Japanese immigrants to the United States. This law would not be reformed until the 1960s. So in your classrooms, it's essential to make connections to what's happening today with Asian Americans, with the large increases in violence against Asian Americans. Asian Americans since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, once immigrants arrived in the United States, what was life like in the city? The Tenement Museum in New York City is one of my favorite museums in the city. It's different from other museums. This is not a specially built building with massive wings and, you know, carefully thought out displays. In this museum, you're walking into people's homes, When you walk over the threshold, you really are transported into another time. You're seeing where and how they lived. The museum is located at 97 and 103 Orchard Street 
on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And if you live near New York and you have never been, go. If you don't live anywhere near New York, they have some really great virtual tours on their website and you can check them out. It still amazes me that at one time there were 22 different apartments and two storefronts in that building. Generally speaking, living conditions in major cities throughout the United States depended on your socioeconomic status. It still does, right? You have wealthy people living in mansions and you have people paying seven cents a night to sleep in a lodging house. According to the Library of Congress, cities grew by about 15 million people in the two decades before 1900. Most immigrants lived in what we call tenements. These were apartment buildings with three-room apartments. What most realtors in New York City will tell you today is the higher the floor, the higher the rent. Well, in the late 1800s, it was the opposite. The closer your apartment was to the street level, the more money you paid for rent. Remember, there's no such thing as elevators yet. You are climbing up all of those stairs and there is typically one entrance and one exit. Now, living on street level was not glamorous either. We are talking about a time where horse and carriage is still the main source of transportation. So you've got manure all over the place. And in New York City, there is no Department of Sanitation yet taking the garbage away. So you've got piles of garbage, rats, all sorts of vermin, dead animals. At times, the piles of garbage could be as high as up to people's knees. Most tenements had outhouses in the backyard. You were lucky if you had a shared toilet with multiple families, okay? Lucky. You were lucky if you lived someplace where you had toilets that flushed or you lived in a newly built building that had clean running water, By the 1840s, New York City starts to get its water from upstate New York after a massive cholera outbreak outbreak plagued the city. There are certain things we take for granted today. Imagine what a major city street would look like if the garbage wasn't picked up for a week. Now imagine for a month. Imagine what the smell would be. The Department of Street Cleaning in New York City, for example, was created in 1881, but garbage collections and actual street cleaning didn't start until years later due to massive amounts of corruption. Wealthy neighborhoods, they hired private companies and individuals to clean their streets and to haul the garbage away. But in the poor immigrant-filled neighborhoods, there's no money for that. Eventually, all city streets were cleaned thanks to the well-oiled machine set up by a man by the name of George Waring, who overhauled the sanitation department. Fun fact, actually, they asked Theodore Roosevelt to do that job, but his response was something along the lines of, who in their right mind would want to do that job? His real response was a little more colorful than that. I'll let you use your imagination. And so he took over the police department instead. But immigrants, they arrived with very little money and they took any job that they could get. The rents required that most families take in boarders and they had to have their wives and children working and, you know, kind of everybody in the household contributing to help pay those monthly expenses. And if you're looking for a great resource to help teach this time period, I also recommend the Mission U.S. game at Mission us.org. It's an interactive game where you help a teenager who is a new immigrant living in New York City navigate her new surroundings. And they have other 
you know, games on different topics as well. Now, now, what types of jobs did most immigrants have? Well, that answer varies. You have immigrants who worked in factories, which were basically sweatshops. They are digging tunnels for subway systems. They're cutting stone. They're building high rises and skyscrapers that still have lifelong city dwellers and tourists alike looking up at the city skylines really in wonder. They are digging ditches to lay cables for streetlights. In the case of our great-grandfather who immigrated to the United States, he got married, he had 18 children, he sold fruits and vegetables on his horse and buggy, and he would um, you know, put together these beautiful baskets of fruit and vegetables and sell them to different professionals to showcase what he had to offer on any you know, given day. And after he died, like so many other immigrant families, the children had to quit school and go to work to help support the family. As tar roads were put down around the city, they will eventually be paving roads um, like our other great-grandfather did. My grandmother would always say that her father had a tan year-round from the heat of the tar. There are so many wonderful stories. I encourage you to ask questions, to write down the stories of those who came before you and made it possible for you to have the life that you have. Just to paint you a picture of what it was like to travel around New York City in the mid to late 1800s, you know, horse-drawn carriages and carts were eventually replaced by cable cars and then trolleys. By the 1870s, you start seeing elevated railroad lines to help ease the congestion on the streets. In 1904, we see the first underground subway system in New York being built. It was privately owned by the Interborough Rapid Transit Company, or IRT, and lines quickly spread throughout Manhattan and other cities like Brooklyn. The age of the automobile would, of course, revolutionize transportation even more. Today, people move about major cities all across the United States with little care or knowledge of how it was built. And the New York City Transit Museum and Brooklyn Historic Railway Association are both great resources for more information. Also, ask around if anyone you know is a sand hog. A sand hog is a term given to the urban miners of New York City. They have built some of the most important pieces of infrastructure in the city. I'm talking the Brooklyn Bridge, subway tunnels, sewer systems, the Lincoln Tunnel, Honnell Tunnel, the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. I know it has a new name. I just, I can't jump on board that bad wagon. The Hewell Carey Tunnel, right? Lots of big projects. The stories that these workers have are incredible. Talk to people. Put down your electronic devices and talk to people. The names of those who helped to dig the subway tunnels and braved the unimaginable heights building bridges and skyscrapers are sadly long forgotten. The images of men digging tunnels with glimpses of horse-drawn trolleys and men and women walking the streets, you know, just going about their day, are a window into a time long forgotten. In most major cities today, there are wonderful walking tours. Get out, explore your city, learn about its rich history. One of my favorite New York City afternoons was spent on a walking tour of New York City learning about the architecture and the names of streets. For example, Canal Street. It was named for the canal that had to be dug to drain a polluted pond in the city. 
Maiden Lane, once upon a time in colonial New York, the young maidens would come to wash their clothes in the nearby brook. There is so much history to be learned. Anytime I'm in a new city, I love to do a local walking tour. Leave us a comment about your favorite tours that you've been on. Or better yet, if you do walking tours in a city, let us know that too. Maybe we can check it out. Improvements to the infrastructures of major cities across New York in particular were stalled by corruption and the power held by city bosses and titans of industry. Political machines existed in every major city and they controlled a political party there. The most infamous was Tammany Hall in New York City run by boss William Tweed. Teddy Roosevelt, who helped to clean up the corruption of New York first as president of the New York City Police Board and then as governor, described political machines in this way. And this is a direct quote. The organization of a party in our city is really much like that of an army. There is one great central boss assisted by some trusted and able lieutenants. These communicate with the different district bosses whom they alternately bully and assist. The district boss, in turn, has a number of half-subordinates, half-allies under him. These latter choose the captains of the election districts. They come into contact with the common healers. Now, just to give you an idea of how powerful political machines were, as Governor Theodore Roosevelt was doing a little too much reforming for their liking, They used their influence to get him on the ticket as vice president. Now, Roosevelt took the carrot that was put out in front of him, but the joke was on them when the president was assassinated and Teddy Roosevelt became president of the United States and could really push for reforms. But we'll get into that in a later podcast. As immigrants arrived in cities, they tended to settle in neighborhoods with people who shared the same language, culture, and religious beliefs. These neighborhoods were often referred to as ghettos. The commonality made it easy for political bosses to dominate and consolidate their power. The members of political machines responded to problems within neighborhoods. They helped families they of help finding a job or a place to live. That help was often rewarded with votes once those individuals were eligible to vote. Tweed was eventually jailed, but he was quickly replaced by somebody else. It wouldn't be until the progressive era when the corruption of the once gilded age would be cleaned up. Living conditions, working conditions in factories that would become a prime focus for people like Florence Kelly and Jane Addams who helped to found Hull House. And we'll talk more about them in our podcast on the progressive era. Very cool information and I look forward to that podcast on the progressive era. When it comes to immigration, many people use the term a melting pot. This notion of all these cultures mixing together And after a while, you're unable to decipher one from the other. Many people use the description of a salad where all of these different ingredients are mixed together, each adding something different and unique to the overall look and makeup of the dish. I really like a quote from Jimmy Carter on immigration. He stated the following, direct quote, We have become not a melting pot, but a beautiful mosaic. Different people, different beliefs, different yearnings, different hopes, different dreams. And that was Jimmy Carter. I love that description, a mosaic. If you don't know the full story of your immigrant past, we encourage you to do some research, to ask questions, to write them down, get recordings of the people of your family who made that choice to leave their country of birth. What was their journey like? How did they get to where they are today? Where do you fit into that story? How is your life different from theirs? How has their sacrifice, their life, 
made your life possible. We all have a story, and each of those stories is added to the mosaic that is the culture of the United States. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.